The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tech Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your hosts Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today we have in studio Misty Bloom. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Thank you, Jason, and welcome, Misty. We appreciate you coming into to the museum and, and sharing the story of you and Michael. Just want to start off to tell the, the uh, listeners that Michael Bloom and Misty Bloom you know, for long-time O'Fallon residents, grew up in the area. Actually, I think you both attended the same high school. Yes. And um, didn't hook up for a long time. It took a number of years for you guys to come together and actually marry. Michael served 20 years in the United States Marine Corps and came out of the Marine Corps. And about nine years to the date, Michael decided that he just couldn't do this anymore and became one of the statistics. And what we talk about is, Michael chose to end his life. He, um, 22 a day becomes a very real number when you learn about people close and learn, you know, people firsthand here. But Misty, tell us a little bit about how you and Michael met and, and, um, you were a Marine Corps wife or I guess a former. Um, I would say former. I mean, I'm, I still, I feel just like I'm always, once a Marine, always a Marine. It's it's kind of the same way, especially the relationships that that I have with people. They last forever. So I would say I'm I'm a Marine life. Okay. Well you did uh you did know each other in high school, but you didn't come together and you didn't marry until later in life. Tell us a little bit about that. Um it was after nine eleven when um I, we reconnected. I actually found him on classmates.com. He was stationed in San Diego, and um, I was back here in O'Fallon. Um, we actually got married in a drive-thru in Las Vegas. So um, it was rather quick. He was getting ready to deploy to uh, Kuwait in 2003. So it was really relatively new marriage when he was getting deployed. Oh, the 
the first time uh, he was actually on standby to leave for Kuwait and wasn't actually supposed to leave the base. And we drove down really quick to Vegas and then drove back up. Uh, we uh, honeymooned at Denny's. Wow. Tell us about that first year. How was that first year experience of being married and not and kind of being separated? Um, it was hard because I stayed back here in Missouri, and he was gone. Uh, we weren't even registered in Deers yet that I was married to him, so it took a while before I even got connected with what was going on. It took 45 days before I heard from him the first time. Because at that time, they didn't even have toilets, so they had to run lines, and um, it took a while. So, Misty, you were married to Michael for all four of his deployments then? I was. Okay. And, you know, that he did come home at one point during those deployments, didn't he? Yeah. So, did he share a lot of what what was going on when he was over there? And uh, No. Um, and bits and pieces. Um. He would say that he had a hard time with the volleying of the lights back and forth, um, that there was a lot of um, fireworks, and it was really hard to um, be constantly hearing that and and, um, constantly on edge, I guess. Um, So that part was really all that I heard about. I, I don't really know what else he saw he shared very little the uh, the one thing about the times i guess we were spoiled nowadays but you know when you're just back just you know 15 20 years ago i mean how did you stay in touch did you say, uh, i know there was sat phones but that was very expensive yeah we didn't do that we actually emailed back and forth when he was on duty mm-hmm. so that's basically how we kept in touch he didn't he wasn't a phone call person anyway so even if he did have it, he probably wouldn't have called. It was more of a um, just emailing, and it was going unless they were having um, I don't even remember uh, something river where everything would go out, and then I wouldn't hear from him for a few days. But um, we usually talked back and forth several times, you know, during the day. The time was different, but um, it was pretty regular. What kind of conversations were they? Were they giving you insight to what was his life was like over there, or was it just more about home? It was more about what he wanted to do when he got home. Okay. Yeah, he didn't really speak much about what was – the only time I ever knew what was really going on was when they put him on a ship on the USS Boxer, his first deployment, and that was really hard for him because all of his guys were still out there, and but he was qualified for some – machinery so he had to be on a ship for the rest of his deployment and that part was really hard because now he was on a can and seeing the um you know the lights and stuff so he said that was really scary misty the one thing i wasn't sure of what michael's mos was uh, did he see combat over there no actually he didn't and i think that's um one of the misconceptions about um, having problems is that you have to see combat to be affected by the stress that you're under over there because 
when you're in an extended period of heightened arousal, it does something to the brain chemistry. And <clears throat> there's no formula for how, how and who will get that. But he was um, an aircraft support equipment mechanic. And he mostly worked with cranes and um, things. It's very hard to explain. He works on things that are in the air station other than aircraft, um, if that narrows it down. Well, you make a great point. You know, a lot of people, the public, generally think of the ones with PTSD as boots on the ground. Right. You know, and, and you know, we, we know of people that are flying drones out in Arizona. And then you, of course, have survivor's guilt and different things like this right. when you're losing friends. So it does affect a much broader group of people than I think than the public understands. Yeah, I do believe one of the bases that he was on, a car bomb came through the gate or got to the gate. It was enough to be seen by people and to be um, a known thing. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what happened, but that was the information that I gave. And I think if I put myself in his shoes, that would probably freak me out. So, I mean, that was just one example of the kinds of things that all service members are seeing. You know, you're not going over there and, and it's it's like going to Japan or, or Italy. It's all scary all the time. So I, I just don't think that um, people should feel guilty that they didn't um, see combat and they're having a problem. Michael did serve four tours in Iraq. And I'm guessing that he came home between tours. And, of course, a little bit of hindsight here, but did you see a change over the period of those tours with him? I did. Um, every single time he came back less himself. It was just a more muted, drawn out, like he was losing his, his shine, but he wasn't able to notice it himself. He thought it was everyone else. He just became came back more frustrated with other people, like more um, easily irritated. Uh, and it was just little things, but in hindsight now, I I know that it, it, it was all connected. Now, I'm also guessing that, you know, you're, you're still – at four years, four deployments, roughly, you know, four or five years, you're you're still in that newlywed kind of mode a little bit there. And, and I, I'm guessing there was no training to kind of no. educate you and to say, hey, maybe there's something going on here. Yeah, and I was also the, he's not infantry. He's just coming back. He's getting older this is the last few you know years of his career the last half of his career he's his bones aren't you know as strong his knees were bad uh he was having stomach problems there were things that i thought were causing it but were actually symptoms of the depression and the uh the torment he was under so um yeah, hindsight, it's 
there there's such subtle changes in them that you don't always attribute it to that you know he was retiring so that brings on some new um challenges and feelings uh he was having surgery right at the end of his he was I guess there's some kind of um, unspoken rule that if you have any surgeries you need to get done, you got to get it done right at the end of your career. And so he was having, like, his knee done. He had his shoulder done. So he was going through some surgeries and some pain, too. He wore a boot for a while, and that was really frustrating. So it's really hard to, to say when you're in it, I recognize this as a problem. It wasn't until the very end when he started drinking that I noticed an actual habit, like a change, uh, a, a behavior thing. It was really bad. The more it progressed, the worse it became. A lot of people talk about the first, a lot of veterans talk about the first day they didn't have to get up and put the uniform on. And it, they say it's very traumatic. They they feel lost. and yeah. And, and of course, I'm sure with Michael, as many years as he served, he had a family. And in the, in the military, the family gets very, very close. And, you know, not only is there the experience of, of wartime, you know, where he's out there in the battlefields or in a war zone, you know, the, 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 uh, the war on terror has kind of taught us there's no safe places. And you said it earlier, you, you, never knew where something was going to happen and that day-to-day stress. But Michael was also leaving his military family for the very first time and then acclimating to a civilian life. Did he have a job lined up or anything? Um, He had started school, but that was also a problem with the VA getting the school to, to pay for the supplies. It was just a really long process. And, um, he had already started school before the VA had, paid so I had to pay out of my salary which was not amazing for his first month of school and so that was really frustrating for him too so that was another thing that he was dealing with that I could have attributed to why he was kind of acting different you know I read in I read in your um in your information here that you know there was you know some other changes too where you um, you noticed that there was in uh, some internal bleeding and he smelled like metal all the time. Yeah, and it was the iron in the in his blood, and it was because he was having um, internal bleeding, bleeding from his rectum. He was so the stress was so up troubling him that it was having a physical reaction in his body. Right. So that um, that was terrifying, and it happened for the longest time, and he was just so proud that he wouldn't, you know, get help. I'm, I don't even know exactly how it, hap- like, uh, ended. He didn't even tell me. It just stopped happening, so I assumed he got help or it stopped. So all those things compounding over time where the stresses were happening, the physical changes, um, you know, there was some, it sounded like there was some uh, family, started to have some family repercussions because of the things that were going on. Yes. 
Yeah. So how did that affect you and in him together and then you separately? Well, it was having a, I couldn't leave my kids with him at the end of his life. He was so unpredictable and I caught him hitting my son. And um, I, I could no longer leave my husband who was a grown man with my kid. So um, that I think that probably, and I think he knew things were not going well, but he was just too proud to admit it. I wasn't um, even allowed to mention it to his parents. He didn't want the outside world to know what was going on with him. So it was very isolating. It was, I felt like I was drowning. I was walking on eggshells. I wanted to help him, but I also didn't want to be around him. He became a, a stranger to me. That was not the person. I've known him since I was 14 years old, and I was 34 we had been married for a decade. We shared two children, and he was a complete stranger. And I had been exposed to it for so long that it became normal for me. I didn't even notice it until we moved back here, and my sister was like, that is not normal. And I'm like, just, you know, I do what I need to do to make sure that he doesn't have a meltdown. So it's, it was a lot of um, anxiety. A lot of pressure on you as the spouse and, and you know, having to keep uh, the family together while he's on deployment and then having to keep the family together when he's back. Yeah. And then there's this wall of shame that, you know, that he might have been feeling that he didn't want the outside world to know, and that can greatly affect you in the way you think and act and, you know, and there's no help out there because it's an invisible wound that uh, you came back with that people aren't seeing. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. The, um, I want to back up just a second because, you know, the, one of the last jobs he was, he was going to become a recruiter. Oh, he became a recruiter for, he failed miserably. And, and it was a job he didn't want. No. He, he was not a people person. Um, but he had, it was during the war and well, the beginning and they were pulling people out of, um, the Middle East to become recruiters. If you had the qualifications, your security clearance, credit, all those things, it didn't matter if you didn't want it, you were selected and you would go through the course. And he was mortified to public speak or to um, be in, in that role. We were getting ready to have our first child on that duty, our son. And it hit him that he was also act asking these boys in Chicago to join a war and, you know, almost... Every day there was a news, um, our, our, a news uh, hit about a Chicago area recruit or not recruit, but a, a PFC young kid. He's it's going through his mind. I'm signing these kids up. These are my children. You know, like he was. It was like a 
a really hard choice for him to not only not be good at public speaking, but also to be going into the northwest suburbs where colleges are a pretty big deal and not as many kids are enlisting in the military, being ran out of malls and high schools. And that just wasn't he, – he was a mechanic. And that was what he loved and that's what he did. And then to, to fail miserably was really hard on him. Yeah, I guess, you know, did you notice the change in Michael? Did did Michael, you were watching him for these years, and, of course, that sounds like it came to a head when he was failing at the recruiting side of it. Did Michael get a sense that he really needed help? Could you tell that? Or? Um, I don't know that he needed he felt he needed help, but he did tell me he was going to drive the govy off the bridge into the river. And so he was exhibiting the behaviors of someone who no longer cared. You know, he I found him crying in the bathroom. Um, there was a time that I found him in an empty parking lot of a deserted grocery store. He was just parked there in the car. Um, I don't know that he thought it was related to the military. I don't know what he thought because he was such um, an inward person. And that's really a shame. I, I don't know. He never told me. And then when I did finally go and he was saying things like that, I went to the um, his boss, and I, he ended up being resentful because he wasn't helped. Uh, what happened was the his boss asked him, "Are you okay?" And he said no, and then he just dropped. They dropped it. So um, he he felt like maybe I had jeopardized his career, and it wasn't about him. It was about something I did. Um, he was actually relieved for cause instead of failure to thrive. Failure to thrive is you just couldn't do it. Causes you intentionally did it. I guess there's um, you can go to your superiors. I mean, you went to his superior officer. Yeah, we were told to do that. It, you encouraged to do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're they were told, and and almost every briefing that we had. Uh, for homecomings to look for the signs. And if they exhibit the signs, it's your duty as the spouse of the Marine to make sure that he gets help, he or she. And I, I did that, but it wasn't met with the same enthusiasm as when I was told to do it because it was on recruiting duty. And... Um, my husband kind of just made me look like, um, I didn't know what I was talking about. So it was, there was nothing that could be done, I guess. Was, was part of that, did Michael know that if he complains or says he's having a tough time that he becomes non-promotable? Yeah, absolutely. He, he wanted 
to be promoted. He wanted to be a gunny. He he looked forward to that, and that was when he knew that he wouldn't. His dream was to be a career marine, and he loved what he did, but he did not love recruiting. And he was struggling so hard, and instead of them helping, they they punished him. And he didn't – he had to stay in the RS the entire rest of his career or the rest of his um, duty there. So it was a year and a half of babysitting the guys who were dipping in the pool and doing um, fraud. So th- his job was – to sit in there until those guys got orders out. So he was never an asset. He wasn't seen as useful. He was just sort of hit away. And that was also heartbreaking, you know, because he, he's he been, been known in the air wing for having the most certifications and knowing the most about the different cranes and, all of the equipment, and here he's babysitting people who are breaking the law. And that's not anything, I guess, what he expected. And it, it was hard to be a Marine and, and always um, completed his mission, and now he was stuck there. It wasn't like they gave him orders for somewhere else. He had to be there the entire rest of the time like a um, a reminder to everyone what happens when you don't meet your quota and it was cruel so he ended up he finished his career in the marines as a recruiter and came out then in what year well he didn't finish his career as a recruiter he went from recruiting to Camp Pendleton, and we were there for six more years. Oh, That's when he did his deploying. Was The bulk of his deploying was in rotations at the air station at Camp Pendleton, and he went straight um, from coming off of recruiting duty. Six months later, he was deployed. So um, he was in this really high-stress job, and then he got, got here, and it was on the tail end – um, right when the 46 was shot down and everyone perished, that was where we went into. That was our shop. So we became Purple Foxes. And it was right after this huge loss. And so it was traumatic in that sense because he went with the next group who deployed after that happened. So there was a heightened awareness that – it could be their reality too. He was asked to be a gunner at one point, and he was like, no, I I don't want to do that at all, um, which is one of the only times I know that he turned down something. But they gave him an opportunity, so he took it. He was like, I'm too close to the end of my career. And that was a positive thing in my opinion because that meant he's thinking about later, you know, not the reckless sort of, a behavior that you expect someone who doesn't care about their life. So it's kind of, um, it's really confusing sometimes to know 
um, what's normal and what's not. He, Michael had to be a little bit relieved that he moved from the recruiting job. Oh, he was super happy to start over because he's going back to what he knows and to what what he was respected for and where he had some um, familiarity. There was just, he was super excited because we spent time in um, Miramar, but we hadn't been to Camp Pendleton. So he was excited to be there. It's the bigger one. Um, he was working on, he was excited about the 46s. He liked that um, aircraft. So it, it, we went in it so hopeful because we thought, oh, it's recruiting duty that's causing your problem, causing you so much stress. We're going to have a new start in Camp Pendleton and we'll be fine. But it was naive because it was great at first because the stress was off. We were in a new home. Um, you know, he had new coworkers. Everything was pretty good. But then they deployed again. And it just seemed like every time, every time it got a little harder. And every enlistment, hard, harder and harder. I don't remember it being, I mean, he was really close to the end and he thought about just walking away. Uh, when we did leave, he refused a retirement party. The only Marine I've ever met who has refused a retirement party. That was a red flag. I should have said something or done something because you want to celebrate all of your accomplishments, all of the people that you met, all the places that you've been. He didn't want to do any of that. He just wanted to go. And what year was that, Missy? Uh, 2013. Okay. Okay. And that was in February 2013 is when we came back to Missouri and he passed away in September, so it was a real short time. Did he when when Michael and you guys moved back to to Missouri? Did you guys have? Did he have a network of of friends that, no. around him? No, he wasn't even particularly close to his his own family. Um, so I there were a couple of neighborhood kids because we grew up in the same neighborhood who knew us both, and and we visited a little bit but no he didn't have any friends from back here it had been 20 years that he was gone the kids that he knew were out in the world you know where wherever they were so we grew up here but also O'Fallon changed a lot so when we came back it was no longer a farm town uh there was houses as far as you could see new highways so all of that was really overwhelming because he was looking forward to some familiarity. And it was not the same place that we left. Did he have a lot of Marine friends that he stayed in touch with? Any? No, you know what? He had one good friend. He just didn't have, he didn't, he had coworkers that really loved him. And people said a lot of really nice things about him after he died. But there were only a few um, Wes's has been his they were friends from um when they first enlisted and they stayed friends the whole time but there was only like one friend that he was really particularly close to i had a lot of friends and we hung out a lot with my friends who had marine husbands on base and neighbors and stuff but he just didn't 
ever have a lot of close friends. Was that natural for him? Was that how he was growing up? Or It kind of was. <clears throat> he was definitely um, an introvert in, in every sense of the word. He, he just wasn't a people person. So what about when you when when he was deployed? How was the support for you? Was there support at all from I mean there were at the beginning there were key wives who were was a network of women who reached out and um gave us updates um and then the more that the social media and internet became available, it was much quicker. We were in chains, that kind of that kind of support. Um, but it's really hard to be a mom with three kids that small. Um, so the support that we had, we made in each other, the other wives. So, I mean, we're still close today. Um, you, they're, they're really like the relationships that Marines develop and that, um, we go through such high, high emotions, low emotions, births. Uh, people getting in accidents, husbands' uh, deployments being um, like extended, or uh, just so so many things that it it becomes a a tightly woven network of of women. We're all over the world, and we still speak. I've been out for nine years now, so that kind of support was plentiful and appreciated. What about the support after he passed? Was there was there support? Was there anybody that surrounded you and, and did the Marines uh, help you? How did that go? That was really frustrating. Um, he died before he was um, raided with the VA. So um, he hadn't started his VA claim. Uh, and then I was told that because he's not alive – when the claim, when the Marine dies, the claim dies, and it was denied. Um, there was a lot of uh, confusion. There were people, uh, Heroes Care, which I think I'm wearing, yeah. Heroes Care was really helpful, and they're a, a local organization. I became a, um, a member of TAPS, which is the Tragedy Assistance Program, and their support is amazing. They really save families and in, in, in these situations because they provide the tailored support to them. And um, I was really grateful for them, most of all. Um, the VFW reached out. There were a lot of organizations who wanted to help. They just didn't know how, and I'm really appreciative uh, for all of that. Misty, I guess I'm I'm thinking back, and I mean, there's casualties of war that we know about, the wounds that we see, and there's casualties that Michael came home with, but there's also casualties for the civilians that are around him, the spouses, and I got to believe that after Michael left the service and came home, you were very optimistic that things were going to really change for the positive there. Yes. I mean, it was the second half of our life. Um, he said if I gave him the first 20, he'd give me the second, and he lasted four months. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a huge letdown. The other thing I guess I'd ask, this is in 2000, it's September 15th, 2013. Correct. The, I'd like to think 
that the VA is, is doing more. I'd like to think that we understand the, the depth of the problem. What do you think? Do you think we're getting adequate care to our veterans? I think we're trying. And I think that there are some programs available, but the vets don't know about it. Like the awareness is not uh, there. Um, but no, I, I, I know that it still happens today because I am a peer mentor to widows who are recently bereaved. And if I'm still needed 10 years later, no, it's not getting better. Um, I, I don't know how to fix it though. So, um, I can say that I, I'm getting involved as much as I can when I'm needed and asked. And it's something that I am really passionate about, uh, making sure that other families don't have to go through what we did and do every day. Um, I don't know that, I don't know how to stop the suicides from happening, but I do have experience with what happens afterwards, so I can help the families um, going through the grief and the terror of suicide loss. So that's that's where I put my energy, is trying to assist the families after after the horrible happens. Well, the other flip side of that question I asked is, you had to be going through... You know, you had a funeral and you had to be going through what could I have done different for the longest time. You have to get therapy for that because you will replay it a million times. I ended up having PTSD as a result of my experience that night because it happened in our home. Um, So what he surrendered to spread to me like it was contagious and to this day, I have to deal with that reality. Um, I, I've has been very hard for the last nine years, um, but I am um, forever changed. I guess um, I really, I just don't want it to happen to anyone else. Well, I think it's very clear there's a lot more casualties of war than those that fall on a battlefield. So you're doing a lot of things today. You've become involved in a number of groups. Tell us what you're working on. Well, I have been involved in the Clay Hunt Act. I was invited to the White House to see the president sign that into um, reality. I have been a peer mentor with TAPS. I've written several articles for different publications, but most recently I am a a care group facilitator um, that will be actually taking place here once a month um, for survivors of military loss. And it's for not suicide, although that's somehow my specialty now, but it's for all loss, for all branches, uh, regardless of how you lost them. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, creating a, a space, a beautiful space here for them to uh, work through it. 
What are some of the resources out there for the, uh, the returning veterans that, whether they know they're struggling with PTSD, uh, what advice, what recommendations do you have for spouses? Tell somebody. I mean, ask around. Other wives may be going through it also. Um, don't, don't ignore it. Don't wait for it to get better. Um, definitely you can talk to, there's a hotline through the VA, um, that you can call, the spouses can call and they can give you direction. Um, there's groups like TAPS, just Google search it. You'll, you'll find so many people out there who want to help you. So many message boards of people who are going through the same thing. Caregivers support groups people who are also dealing with it as a wife, um, where you can ask questions and not feel like you're getting them in trouble or you're going to get them mad at you. Um, find me on Facebook. I mean, whatever you, you need to do, I will direct you to somebody that can help. And peer support is huge. I think peer support is what helps the Marine or, or a service member, and it helps – the caregivers around them because they need a break too. You're dealing with someone who may not acknowledge in themselves what you see. It's you can see it. You're their partner. If you have any kind of inkling that something's not going on, act on it. It's better to be safe than sorry. I mean, they can be mad at you all they want. They'll be alive to be mad at you. Is there any support groups for the kids that are involved in these scenarios that they can yes. talk freely and get and, and be able to get stuff off their chest or or be able just to relay what they're going through? Yeah, um, actually, I, TAPS has a good grief camp that my children went to, and it is a camp that is ran just for children to work through the different um, issues that kids face. And the really cool thing about that is the camp counselors are actually Marines who volunteer for it. And the last one that my daughter went to, it was someone from her dad's shop that was her camp counselor and who personally knew her dad. And so it was a great relationship because it was so personal. And it didn't happen on purpose that way, but it was really awesome. And it it really is good for kids to be around other kids who are going through the same thing, who also lost a loved one and whose lives are different looking now. That's a great question, Jason, to ask because we mentioned that there's a lot of casualties and I don't think we routinely think of the kids. The kids over a period of time definitely would change. Um, it's, it's so strange because... I'm, it's like re-experiencing the loss through all the different phases of a life. So as they're little, they understand he's gone, but then they understand larger concepts, and then puberty comes, and then teenage years come, and they realize certain things that they're maybe missing out on or getting ready to miss out on, and it just sort of warms it back up. You know, it brings new feelings to the surface, and... We have to tackle it all over again. So it is a lifetime of grief, of trying to heal from it. 
do do your kids ever get an opportunity to celebrate your your husband and Oh, we do all of the his birthday is actually uh exactly 1 week after his death date. So it's a very hard month, but um on his birthday we do a chocolate cake every single year because chocolate cake, chocolate icing was his dad their dad's favorite. So we put the candles in it, we sing happy birthday. We have a, a, a routine. Um, we have, he's still got pictures in our home. He's not, it's not like the kind of um, thing that we hide. We, we have pictures everywhere and they have his um, like memorabilia, his PT shorts they wear sometimes or his ugly green shirts. Um, uh, my daughter still sleeps in those. She has a daddy blanket that has pictures of him from when he was deployed. We um, constantly keep him in our th- lives. You know, That's awesome. Um, the best that I can. And his parents live in the same neighborhood right down the road. So um, we also get the benefit of being close. Well, Misty, thank you so much for sharing everything this is a very hard thing to share and to tell your story um we've really enjoyed having you here in in their studio to uh just to give a light to uh, what happens you know in the in the losses that we take every day with our soldiers marines airmen and uh it's uh it's very appreciative of us to to be able to hear your story and to be able to um uh, you know Talk about Michael and, and talk about uh, your experience. And is there anything else before we wrap up that you want the listeners to know about um, this situation or in, about Michael specifically? I just want to give you the final opportunity to do that. No, I just really want to thank you guys for helping spread awareness and for caring enough to um, bring me in here and let me share something about him. Sometimes his uh, memory gets lost in how he died, and how he died is important, but who he was also. Um, and he was a dad of some children, a son, uh, a, a mechanic, a lover of cars, um, and a dog dad. And that's, I, I want him to be remembered as not just one of 22, a statistic, but, you know was a good guy absolutely and anybody that puts the uniform on voluntarily even involuntarily is a hero in my book uh, he's a hero to the to the country and a hero to his family uh, no matter how he passed that's you know in my book irrelevant to his heroism so thank you for sharing your hero with us and uh, we really appreciate you misty we're going to go ahead and sign off of the dog tag podcast from the saint charles county veterans museum very proud of a local partner headquartered here in St. Peter's, Missouri. Wright Construction Services is licensed in 22 states, serving the commercial, industrial construction industry, and general contracting and design build. 
What makes Wright unique and one of our favorite partners is their strong commitment of giving back. Once again, in 2022, Wright will host their Building Changes 4th Annual 22 Strong event on Saturday, September 24th, 2022. The number 22 is significant to the event because it represents the 22 veterans who lose their lives to suicide every day. The virtual 22-day challenge will take place September 3rd through 24th, 2022. The goal of each of these events is to raise awareness and funds for organizations dedicated to eliminating veteran suicide. The challenge is simple. Walk 22 miles to benefit veterans at the local and national level. In 2022, Building Change will offer their popular 22-day virtual challenge, a 22-mile in-person walk, and a 2.2-mile in-person walk. Would you like to help walk or become a sponsor? For more information about the 22 Strong program, visit www.rightconstruct.com slash giving dash back. That's www.wrightconstruct.com slash giving dash back. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.